Hi, and welcome to episode 124 of the Crafty Planner podcast. My name is Sandy Hazelwood, and I will be your host. Through the podcast, I share the stories of makers in our community to inspire you on your own creative journey. Today's podcast is the last in a mini-series on the historic role of quilts and their preservation. So far, I've interviewed Laura McDowell Hopper, the curator of the Quilts and Human Rights exhibit, currently on exhibit at the James B. and Roslyn L. Pick Museum of Anthropology, as well as Nancy Bevore, the executive director of the San Jose Museum of Quilts and Textiles, the world's oldest quilt museum, and Amy Milne, the executive director of the Quilt Alliance, whose mission is to document, preserve, and share our American quilt heritage by collecting the rich stories that historic and contemporary quilts and their makers tell about our nation's diverse peoples and their communities. Today's guest is Roderick Karakoff. Living in San Francisco, Roderick is a former quilt dealer, quilt collector, and author of The American Quilt, A History of Cloth and Comfort, Cloth and Comfort, Pieces of Women's Lives from Their Quilts and Diaries, as well as Unconventional and Unexpected, American Quilts Below the Radar. During our conversation, we talk about how he started collecting quilts, his passion for quilt history, why he took a break from the industry, and how he overcame his own form of imposter syndrome to write Unconventional and Unexpected. This is a longer interview as there is much important quilt and cultural history that I wanted to preserve in our conversation. I hope you enjoy Roderick's 40-year journey and his wisdom. Hi, Roderick. Thank you for being on the show today. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Tell me about your creative journey. Boy, (laughs) Um, great question. Um, It's been a long journey um, now that I'm in my 60s. I never particularly thought I was creative. (laughs) Um, I think that was others viewed me that way. Um, But I do know as a kid, I was curious about things and I just would find out more about them. I loved going to the library in town or being in the school library, but there was something I think just initially about being curious about mm-hmm. what was around me and um, kind of exploring these things. Um, and college, I realized I was around a lot of artists, artistic people, but I wasn't artistic in my mind. Um, When did it start? Well, one of the things I was curious about in my hometown in Indiana growing up, as I got older, was the things in the basement, (laughs) our basement or my grandmother's basement, just objects. Mm-hmm. from a time before I was around. Um, I, I found them beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I started going to, um, you know, auctions. I mean, auctions wasn't even really the right word, but estate sales. But there was an auctioneer. <laughs> People <laughs> were bidding on things. And out, you know, in the country, just like going through people's, lives it was could be a little strange i mean here's here's somebody's life all spread out on the front yard yeah but yet there was 
I think there was a sensitivity to me about that um, and an awareness mm-hmm. that, you know, human beings used this and lived with this and that informed some of the, the curiosity. But, you know, I, I also then had this desire to collect mm. things or things that I found beautiful and those kinds of objects changed over time. Um, the real turning point or kind of more of a starting point or directing, it started when I was five, but a directing was, and I've referred to this a lot in um, the books and introductions about myself was I was living in Los Angeles in 1973 with a girlfriend who I'd met at Indiana University. Um, and she had a quilt on our bed that had been made by an aunt of hers. He lived in Wisconsin and it was pastel-y and pretty and <laughs> butterflies. You know, it was very semi <laughs> and I mean, she loved it that it was from a relative and I thought that was cool too. And I grew up with a grandmother that sewed, um, and I would be in her sewing room with her, watching her at the machine. And she taught me how to do little, those red and white um, stitching things. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> there oh. was a printed pattern. Mm-hmm. There was a printed pattern on the cloth and mm-hmm. you put it in a ring and you outlined it with red thread. Of, um, <laughs> my stitches weren't, you know, that <laughs> great. But I kind of enjoyed doing this. It was more about just, watching her and seeing her make things. She made these neck pillows that got sold at the, that she made for family and Mm -hmm. friends. And then they were sold at a church bazaar and everyone loved them. And they're just this perfect little pillow to put behind your neck when you were sitting in an easy chair (laughs) and leaning back. But, you know, so that quilt in Los Angeles, um, reminded me of my grandmother and then we're just thinking about somebody actually made this. They cut out the fabric and then she embroidered around the butterflies and, and that quilt got put in the washing machine and put back on the bed and put in the washing machine, put back (laughs) on the bed and it it started wearing out. Um, And then the, following year, I returned to school. I dropped out of school, trying to find myself. And I was in a small private school in Pasadena. And one of my instructors had a log cabin quilt top that she had bought at a yard sale in Pasadena for I can't remember now what it was, $5 or $10. It was mm. like kind of nothing. <laughs> and she had it hanging on her wall. And I stood back from it and looked at it. It was kind of dark, but you, know, you could see the pattern of the log cabin and different colors. And here it is on the wall, like a piece of art. And the two of those, directions just like really went in deep to me Mm -hmm. 
I was not raised in a home with, you know, original art, but it was artistic and created my mother, you know, kept a beautiful home and decorated nicely. <laughs> so there was, I think, that awareness of kind of style and design, but, you know, learning about art was part of the adventure as well. So this may be a good time to enter the whole coming out, being aware of sexuality, because um, I've never really hid that, but I've not, you know, broadcast it. But I think in each subsequent book, I've been a little more open, particularly in the unconventional, like, mm-hmm. let's not hide this in any way. Um, but, yeah, so I, I was coming out and that was a journey in and of itself as well. Um, but I was in California and then was going back to um, Southwest Ohio for summers to work. Um, that was where my father was from and he grew up in a church of the brethren mm. home and community. And um I started going to auctions again back there because I like doing that. And I started seeing quilts in Indiana when I was in these auctions in the mid 60s and late 60s. I never saw a quilt. Mm. And I learned later from people that the auctioneers and people that handled those is at that point in time, betting was just taken to the dump. Mm. There was no one interested or I don't know if they thought, (laughs) oh, it's betting, like no one's going to buy any of this. But, you know, that included quilts. Mm. They just got taken to the dump. Um, But now it's 1974, yeah, 74 that I'm back in the Midwest. And by now... John Holstein and Gail Vanderhoff's exhibition at the Whitney that happened in 71, you know, has happened. And the wheels that started turning after that of folk art and antiques and collecting and quilts and then being in magazines, you know, there was just much more awareness now about them. Church of the Brethren actually is a, like a cousin to the Amish and the Mennonites. They all kind of grew out of the same um, origins. (laughs) So there is a quilting tradition among the Church of the Brethren and Ohio. And I don't really know the reasons. There are other historians that would know better. Um, With just a hotbed of quilt making, some of the jumping ahead to... Michael Kyle and I starting to collect quilts. Mm -hmm. We just found some of the best quilts we ever found in Ohio. Mm. Um, There just was a, there was the Amish there, of course, but it wasn't just the Amish quilts. Some of the best blue and white quilts came out of Ohio. Mm. It was a hotbed of quilting. Um, So, I went to a farm auction and 
Southwest Ohio and saw a an applique, a tulip applique quill, bright red tulips and green stems. And it was, let's see if I can remember now, um, what era it was. I mean, I think it was late 1800s. I don't think it was an early 20th century. It was late 1800s, but it, it wasn't wasn't incredibly quilted by any means. But I just thought it was beautiful, <laughs> and it and it had this beautiful red binding on it, like the red yeah. tulips. So I paid twenty five dollars, which seemed like nothing to me. Everyone else was shocked <laughs> at the auction. And the people that were starting to kind of collect or be dealers in quilts or at least specialize that in that along with other antiques. I mean, they were really shocked and actually kind of annoyed. Mm. They were buying the quilts for $5 or 10 or, you know, getting a big group of quilts for yeah. not much money. And here, who is this guy? <laughs> and he's paying $25. He's going to run the market. They knew the family name. So, I mean, I, that helped some. Um, I wasn't just a nobody, but here I was coming in and buying these. But I took the quilt back to, I was living with my cousin and her partner in a little farmhouse and took it and hung it on a clothesline. Mm. And I grew up with clotheslines in Indiana. My mother hung the sheets out on the line and my grandmother also. So... I always just loved clotheslines and just thought they were <laughs> kind of kind of magical with seeing everything hanging out on. So hung it on the clothesline and you know kind of stood way back in the yard to look at it from this visual perspective and thought this is really beautiful. Got up and started looking at it closer and looked at the binding and realized. Well, one, it, it was had been machine applied. Mm. All the rest of the work was handwork, and I just could kind of tell. Oh, this red is brighter. It looks newer. Oh, and then just figured out. Oh, okay, this binding has been replaced. Mm -hmm. It's not original to to the quilt. Mm -hmm. But um, kind of learned that. That happened. <laughs> the bindings do wear out, and people did this, but it just it kind of gave me a new clue about looking. Mm -hmm. So then I meet Michael Kyle at I went to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where Antioch College is. Um, they had a, a gay liberation group at the college, and. I thought, well, gee, maybe this is a way to meet other gay people. <laughs> I mean, I had my lesbian cousin and her partner, but um, I'm here in the Midwest. What about maybe expanding the, you know, finding other people like mm -hmm. me? Yeah. Um, so went to a meeting and, um, you know, it was filled with people, mostly men, but there were women there too. And, you know, most of them were, Antioch students and hmm. bright and, you know, a lot of cute guys there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just, oh my gosh, yeah. They're in the Midwest. There are other um, gay people and 
and I'm at Michael Kyle. Now, um, I won't go into a lot of detail around that, but um, we kind of hit it off and went back to the house where he was living and he had quilts hanging on his wall mm. and a quilt on his bed. And then they were all family quilts mm. They'd been made by relatives. And I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. <laughs> so we had this shared interest. So, okay, we are, um, do I need to speed up this journey? Um, <laughs> well, I was like, I know, <laughs> did you guys start then the Quilt Digest shortly after that? Or I know you guys went oh, no, to auctions no, and... So, um, I went back to Pasadena, finished school, moved back to Ohio to, I was doing, I was a social worker at the time. Um, Michael and I started, then we were living together in Yellow Springs in a house with a group of people. Um, we started going to auctions to mm. buy quilts because we both had this interest. And essentially, we were collectors, um, just finding quilts that we really liked and responded to and looking at them carefully and closely. And um, again, this experience of we saw a couple of women quilt dealers we knew in the area. They'd gone through the pile of quilts and then they were finished. We went over and we started opening them up and looking at them and like really looking at them. Mm -hmm. They had spent a very brief time kind of looking and making their decision or whether they were going to bid on them or not. But we're there like spending considerable time looking at each quilt, front side, back side. And then we decided on the ones we were going to bid on and went and sat down and we, we saw these same women come back to the quilt <laughs> and start looking at them. It's like, what were these guys looking at? What's here? What's, yeah. you know? Um, and I think at even one point people started asking, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? And we just explained it's like looking at, is it handmade or machine? What's the condition? What's the quality? What's the age of it? We were educating ourselves yeah. as well, just really looking. And so um, we had, we collected, I don't remember how many quilts. A friend of mine from college, from Indiana University, came to visit once and we spread them out on the lawn to show him. And he'd say, Oh, these are really beautiful. He said, Have you ever thought of selling them? And it was mm. like, Oh my God. Gosh, no. <laughs> I love them. I want to, you know, keep them. And yeah. no way. No way do I want to sell them. <laughs> um, Michael and I took a trip to New York. We went to Thomas K. Woodard, who was one of the big three quilt dealers. America Hurrah, Thomas K. Woodard, and Kelter Malsay were the three big guns in New York who had you know, shops that were selling, we were just, we're making a business mm -hmm. of selling quilts. Um, and, and we're now E.P. Dutton, Cy Nelson, the editor there. It started, you know, books were being published and the quilt engagement calendar was out. And 
a lot of that was in the in the marketplace now. And so we went to Thomas Woodard's shop and started looking through his beautiful quilts. Most of them were from Pennsylvania. They weren't um, a lot. They weren't like what we were seeing in Ohio. There was mm. there was a real difference. And we realized, and he said, I mean, most of them were coming out of Pennsylvania. Again, I mean, Pennsylvania produced oh yeah. an incredible quilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and his quilts were five hundred dollars. Mm which just seemed like a heck of a lot of money. I thought, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to afford <laughs> to buy these. And came back to Ohio and something about my friend Miller's question, have you ever thought of selling these? I mean, it did plant a seed. We thought, well, why not? Maybe we would try um, it was the same time we were considering, we'd been in Yellow Springs, me two years, he had been there three, we were kind of getting the bug to move to a bigger city. We both loved New York, but there was also a draw to California and specifically San Francisco, again, because this is 1978 and mm-hmm. it was, um, there was a huge migration of gay people, um, particularly men, seems like more of the gay women were moving to Seattle. (laughs) Men were moving to San Francisco and Mm. there was a draw of that too. Um, We both were involved in gay liberation stuff in Yellow Springs and actually doing fundraising. There were attacks against gay rights beginning in various parts of the country and we did fundraising to send money Mm -hmm. to help those organizations. Anyway, so we decided to go to um, a antique show in Michigan and we had a group of quilts and we decided what we were going to price them at and we also made the decision that we were going to put as much history as we knew about each quilt. Um, just, you know, the pattern name and, and the date range that we thought and the kinds of fabrics. And if we w- were lucky to have a maker name, including that, because we just felt, you know, the history is important to have with these quilts. We went to this antique show, did not sell a single quilt. Mm. A dealer across the aisle from us said, you guys have great stuff. You're at the wrong show. This is not where quilt people come. You've got to be at Ann Arbor. You've got to go to the Ann Arbor show. The Ann Arbor antique show was um, had a great reputation. All the dealers from New York and East Coast came there to buy. People from all over the Midwest would descend on Ann Arbor one Sunday morning. Um, and, you know, by, mm. so we were given the name of the woman that, um, organized this show and we got into that show and we sold every single quilt that we wow. brought. We looked at each other kind of like, Oh my gosh. And when people bought, we handed them a sheet of paper about the quilt, and they said, what's this? This is the history that we know on the quilt. Mm. And they went, oh, my gosh, no one has ever done that when I bought a quilt. Mm. Um, 
And then we realized we've got to go out and buy more quilts. And so we had three weeks to, you know, scour the state of Ohio and Indiana and, you know, stock up on more quilts. Um, did that, I think, three more times, each time selling everything, even the, de- even the decoration we would br- bring, wow. you know, a beautiful little stone pot or something. I mean, people just descended on us like locusts. We realized we obviously were selling at good prices, but we were making money. Um, we'd started communicating with dealers in the Bay Area, one of which, one of the shops and the biggest shop was Mary Strickler's Quilt Gallery that was run by Julie Silber and Linda Ruther. They both were from Michigan and they knew the Ann Arbor show. And the second show we went to, Linda Ruther came through. She was on a buying spree and we met Linda. She bought some quilts. So we pack up our car, loaded the back seat with quilts and headed west to San Francisco. We came to San Francisco and Julie and Linda were the first people we took quilts to and sold to them. And also started a long-term friendship with both of them. Um, what happened, we, we started wholesaling to all the California, the, yeah, all the California stores. We did San Francisco. We went to LA. There were quilt shops there. We went to um, San Diego. We met Gail Benny Winslow. Um, she said, oh, you've got to meet my father when he comes out in the winter. So the next winter, we meet her father, who's Ed Benny the third. Mm-hmm. He was a major collector of many different things, but he and Gail together were collecting quilts. Um, there were just kind of all these fortuitous meetings of people. We had a gay friend in San Francisco who knew the the gay gardener at the Esprit de Corps. That was our entree into meeting Doug Tompkins at Esprit de Corps. And there was a bit of a barrier. We had tried on our own to make contact there at Esprit, but you know about the Esprit collection, right? Or Why don't you tell us more about them? Okay. Um, Doug Tompkins was um, a major, major Amish quilt collector, and he and his wife had a company called Esprit Decor, which was a women's clothing, casual, California-style clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and had built quite a clothing empire. This was pre-Gap. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. they had a beautiful, they had refurbished an old you know, warehouse industrial building in Petrero Hill, and their headquarters were there, and he had quilts on the walls throughout the headquarters. You could make an appointment. You could come in, walk through the... Um, entire place looking at these incredible at that time it was 99% Lancaster Amish quilts Mm. so we got this introduction to Doug we took quilts over to him we really introduced him to the Midwest Amish quilts Mm. because we by then Lancaster Amish quilts were 
kind of out of our price range. <laughs> um, they had just gotten so expensive. We felt that the Ohio and Indiana Amish quilts were, you know, were really beautiful. So we just helped him see that too. And he started expanding his collection into Mifflin County Amish, Mifflin or Pennsylvania, but the Ohio Amish and Indiana Amish. Is that when you started working with like Bank of America and Levi Strauss? Was it that around the same time? Yes. Um, we hung a show at the Transamerica Pyramid um, in their gallery. They had rotating art shows and I can't remember exactly how we made the contact to Transamerica's art buyer, but we did and proposed selling or putting a show up of the quilts. She liked it. Um, she had bought a quilt for Transamerica's art collection. And we knew that the New York dealers um, were selling quilts to a lot of the corporations headquartered in New York. And so well, we can try out here because there are a number of corporations based in San Francisco. So I contacted the art buyer, art curator for Bank of America, um, Levi Strauss, we knew were collecting quilt and walked them through mm. that. And Bonnie Ursolari, who was the curator at Bank of America, had a great eye and realized what how beautiful these objects were. Um and there was also, I mean, somewhat of a practical nature to her <laughs> collecting. She mm. could cover a lot of wall space with a quilt. Oh, yeah. And w- we were asking, you know, very reasonable prices, but, and as works of art. But mm-hmm. to her, they were just, they're incredibly inexpensive compared to a painting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, she she wasn't just buying them because they were covering walls. But she she got them. She yeah. saw the art in them. Then what she started finding is once they were getting mounted and placed in various either offices or in banks themselves, mm-hmm. the response from the women who worked there and from tellers it was just it was kind of overwhelming. A lot of them never really related to the modern art that was getting put up, put in the buildings, mm-hmm. you know, that was being collected. Um, here was something that they could relate to. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my grandmother made quilts. My mother makes quilts. Or by then, like, I make quilts. Now, they saw kind of the difference in what these quilts were, but it was relatable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they loved it and that, of course, was good for Bonnie, too, that she's putting art in places that, that people responded to. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of a niche. Same with um, Levi Strauss. They got it. We were in Southern California. We had a, a collectors from Southern California who turned out to be an attorney for Nick Wilder. And Nick Wilder was one of the premier modern contemporary art gallery owners in LA at the time, early 80s. 
I mean, he was representing and showing all the major California artists. Mm. We approached him and about doing a show in his gallery. Mm. Um, and he, he was really open to it. And we actually had the last show. He, he was deciding to leave LA and move to New York, but um, we did the last show in his gallery. And that brought in, you know, a whole contemporary art collector mm-hmm. <laughs> um, person and the corporate art buyers in Southern California. We met Tamara Thomas through that. She was buying quilts for Security Pacific Bank and other major corporations, the corporate buyer for Arco Oil that was based in L.A. So, um, you know, we were selling quilts as art, and the art world, corporate art world, was acknowledging that and um, buying them for that purpose. At that time, we're people buying quilts, but maybe not as interested in the history of it? Like when you said that people had bought the quilts in Ann Arbor and they weren't used to getting papers about the history of them. Is that something that you found to be a unique experience anywhere you were selling a piece? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. We had both the antique quilt collector, you know, the the personal collector that Mm -hmm. was coming to us. Um, Love them, and and they particularly loved the history. But the same with the the art buyers. You know, any contemporary work of art got the artist's name and when it was done, and yeah. all of that. So it it was kind of no different in that it wasn't that they didn't want that at all. They did. So that just that connection to the history of each of the pieces was important. And so at this time, I mean, we began to feel like, gosh, how, I mean, just quilts are coming out of the woodwork and there are quilt dealers everywhere, all over the country and quilt collectors. And how long is the supply of quilts going to last? So we were trying to have a little bit of a forward thinking of like, well, what else could we add to this um, business that we're doing of mm-hmm. buying really great quilts? Michael was a writer and had written several novels. He had an agent in New York, and Michael was a very good writer. He had written novels with a gay theme Mm -hmm. that hadn't started happening yet. All the major publishers were saying, no, thank you. Um, He was really ahead of his time in that regard. And we were also looking at the publishing scene. It was all coming out of New York. E.P. Dutton was kind of the major publisher that was doing it. Cy Nelson was a big folk art collector who was their major editor that was doing the quilt books and the folk art books. Um, And all the collectors and all the dealers that were shown in the books were East Coast. Mm. Nothing from California and other parts of the country. I mean, some Pennsylvania, but all East Coast. And by now, we were traveling the state of California. We were speaking to quilt guilds up and down the state. Um, We were building collections. Julie and Linda particularly had built great collections with people 
um, there were great quilts in California. Mm. And, you know, we tried, we actually did get into the quilt engagement calendar. We were submitting at that time four by five transparencies, <laughs> not digital, <laughs> um, you know, because we wanted to get in the game and, yeah. you know, be seen on that way. Um, we took out a big full page ad in the Clarion, which was the magazine for the Museum of American Folk Art. Yeah. Um, again, just to get our name in front of those folks. But um, we just kind of looked around the landscape. We had two friends in Los Angeles that were just starting. Well, actually, it was the former gallery director for Nick Wilder. The galleries closed. So Jack Woody was looking at what he's going to do next. Um, he loved photography and he started a publishing house of really fine photography books, um, printing the books in Japan. Mm-hmm. And he kind of said to us, why don't you start your own publishing company? <laughs> we, we saw how he'd done it. Mm-hmm. And we also were looking at the landscape. All of the books were either about antique quilts and history, or it was contemporary, mm-hmm. contemporary magazines, Cultures Newsletter, you know, all the others, or how-to books. Mm-hmm. And there was just this big divide. Now, a lot of our collectors actually made quilts, too, but they came to making quilts from being interested in antique quilts. Um, so Quilt Guild, they had an interest in the antique quilts. It was more of what we knew from collectors, East Coast dealers and collectors who just thought contemporary quilts. I mean, they looked their nose down at contemporary quilts. Mm-hmm. Um, we were meeting you know, some of the early great quilt makers, Joan Schultz, Yvonne Porcella, Linda McDonald. Um, yeah, I'm going to not name, but I mean, there were so many based in California. Yeah. Um, we were getting to know them and seeing the work that they were doing. You know, it was pre-art quilt movement. So we thought, okay, why not? <laughs> Let's let's start a, a quilt publishing business and, and let's bring the two worlds together, mm-hmm. the antique and the contemporary world. So the Quilt Digest was conceived and brought into fruition. We we knew we wanted all of the articles to be extremely well-written and researched. We loved beautiful design. I found a great designer in San Francisco, who would design the, the book beautifully. We were going to Japan to have it printed, you know, high quality, less price. And by then, we knew kind of the major players in the quilt world. And, and we were being seen and recognized by just the quality of what we were putting out. I mean, just the quilts themselves. Or, mm-hmm. And we decided we are going to focus primarily on West Coast, but not you know, to exclude the East Coast by any means. Yeah. 
Um, it's what you knew. Right. I, um, I was going to do this gallery each year. We decided it was going to be an annual publication. Um, I would do this gallery, which we called the showcase where, and I didn't know it at the time, <laughs> but now I, mean, I was curating this, this show, mm. you know, and I didn't see it that way. I just thought, oh, I get to pick these quilts that I really like <laughs> and decide which is going to go where. And, and yeah, and then we're going to show and highlight some great California collections, California quilt makers, but make contact with people around the country. And so that Quilt Digest, the first one, um, came about. And it really, I think, make a lot of people pause and mm-hmm. take notice of these guys, these two guys in San Francisco. And one of the biggest compliments was from the antique quilt collectors and the dealers who had kind of poo-pooed contemporary quilt saying, Oh my gosh, we had no idea that they, you know, that this kind of work was being done. It was, it was a really wonderful project. Now, it also, it was becoming the demise of Michael and I on a personal level. Mm. Um, our relationship was coming to a conclusion, but we wanted to work together because we had created something. Um, so it's, just, it, it's interesting me looking backwards of kind of, there's a lot of stories that we won't reveal today um, about just what was going on behind the scenes. In the meantime, this beautiful project and product was being created. Well, it feels like it also started your interest in trying to connect contemporary or I, I hate to use the word unexpected because I know that's the you know one of the the ways to describe or one of the words in the title of your last book but I think it kind of is this you're seeing things from a different perspective from where you grew up and then traveling sort of you know around and seeing where everybody is making different quilts what's being valued and you're stepping back and saying, look, there's some unexpected, beautiful things here and correlations between, you know, the antique world and the contemporary world. And like, I see that reflected in your books too, that you're trying to show everybody the connection between these two things that may seem disparate, but really isn't. Exactly. Unconventional, unexpected, really brought it kind of full circle to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just produced the Quilt Digest, and then I get asked by Clarkson Potter, will you write what they refer to as the Quilt Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, and I first said, no, that's too big of a project, but um, I thought better of myself. <laughs> so, you know, that was a seven-year project. Again, mm. this, you know, we're talking about the length of time <laughs> that yeah. it takes to do something. And that became a passion project. Um, I had to go out and make some money while I was doing it to <laughs> make it make it happen. But the American Quill certainly is much more from the history side. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to, I mean, I had the choice of kind of the best quilt all over the country. Um, 
access to museums, access to collectors, collections that I'd helped build, but other collections. And um, I wanted to put in kind of the most beautiful quilts I could find, but I also, I put in tied comforters or tied quilts mm-hmm. in that book. Yeah. I put in kind of funky quilts. It wasn't as clear at that time to me what was happening, but, you know, in the hindsight, um, I see it. But at the time, I said, like, I don't want it to just be the most perfect quilt and the most beautiful. I want to look at some other beautiful objects that most people would think, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that as beautiful, but you're showing me (laughs) that it is. And it's in a beautifully designed book and it's in a beautifully written and researched book. And so again, that book comes out um, and it made a big impact. Mm -hmm. Um, It influenced a lot of people. I still, people come up to me and say, that was the book that got me interested in quilts. That got me started making then I did a cloth and comfort, the little gift book the mm-hmm. following year, because I just, I, that really focused on, you know, the voices of women, the makers, um, in doing the research. I loved finding that kind of either original material or an excerpt from an earlier book that I just thought this said so much about the woman <laughs> who had made this mm-hmm. and, you know, these are beautiful objects, but there's a a real person who has chosen fabric and used needle and thread to create it, and people slept under it. And, and then I felt after that, I kind of said everything that I had to say <laughs> about quilts. I didn't, I just didn't feel like there was anything more, and I, I didn't want to just keep doing it because... I was known for that. Yeah. And so in a sense, I, I dropped out and I also needed to make money. Mm-hmm. These, um, I mean, I did make money on the American quilt. I'm, I'm one of the fortunate authors that actually made money on a book. Most people do not. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, you know, tons of money, but I did make money and I was smart enough to you know, invest it didn't just live off of it, but I'm just very grateful that, you know, that that was the reality, but I had to get, um, a nine to five. Um, so I took off in a different direction and just, I'm really happy with what I did with quilts, but I'm putting that to bed. A lot of people over the years would say, why don't you do something with quilts again? Why don't you do something with quilts? And I said, no, I'm not going to just do it, you know, create some other projects that I don't really have a lot of feeling or, gee, maybe this one will make a lot of money. And I've, I've said this in other interviews and in books. Um, I, I literally did wake up one morning and think, what were the quilts? I mean, the common held thought among quilt historians were that with quilt making really stopped after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the quilt dealing world, certainly on no one wanted to sell a quilt that was made. I mean, even the 1940s was, you know, kind of stretching it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything was made in the 50s or 60s, no way. 
yeah. either it's not old enough or it's not considered worthy, but it just the thought was quilt making had stopped, not to start again until, you know, a few pioneers in the late 60s, but just the whole quilt revival that happened in the 70s with, again, after seeing the antique quilts hung on walls and all this interest and people starting to collect them, you know, the quilt guilds form and people take up quilting on their own and the quilt classes and just that whole explosion of interest in quilts and quilt museums start to happen and and the art quilt movement and um, studio art quilt association forms. I had this curiosity again of, well, what if there were quilts or what might they be like? And also I had worked with so many great collectors and I mean, the whole gamut of collectors, but um, I can't do that. Um, kind of went back to those early <laughs> feelings of, oh, we can only collect these quilts. I don't have the money mm-hmm. or all the great quilts are gone. How many pieces did you have at that point? I didn't have a single quilt. Oh, now, I had okay. some family. I, um, I did have a few that emerged after I started in the business from my family. Mm-hmm. And then the whole eBay phenomenon. And <laughs> I knew Julie Silver was now selling quilts on eBay. And then the American Quilt got republished um, in a soft cover edition in 2004 and I updated the dealer section and I started finding out, gee, there's, there are new people selling quilts and there's um, these new young dealers selling quilts. And I just thought, how could there possibly be quilts to sell? <laughs> there are, but I mean, I just kind of got reconnected to um, kind of a new group of people selling mm-hmm. quilts, but a lot of it had an eBay presence. And why don't I just go in and look here and, and see what's here? And I'm going to buy just what appeals to my eye. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to buy looking at, um, I did decide I want to see if quilts are from the mid 20th century to the end. Um, and certainly some of the quilts were in the 30s, 40s. I'm just going to look at quilts that appeal to my eye visually. I mean, and all this time, all these books that I've done that have gotten so much praise over, I felt somewhat of a fraud. Like I didn't go to design school, art school. I don't know how to curate. I don't know if it's really art or not. Um, You know, just those insecurities that we all have. Yeah. Um, I just thought I'm going to just completely trust my eye and see what I come up with. I mean, I would go back through the books and like, Oh, these are really good. These are really good. (laughs) Um, part of that self-confidence and self-trust that some people have early on and some people, um, work on it throughout their lives and come to know it better. Um, I'm one of those. So I started buying quilts on eBay Mm -hmm. and they would come and they were just way better than they look on the pictures. Mm -hmm. 
And people said to me, like, how can you buy without even seeing it? I thought, well, I've seen hundreds of thousands of quilts <laughs> in my career. Yeah. Um, and again, it was, okay, I'm going to trust my eye. If, if one comes in and it's a dud, okay, just put it aside. But they weren't. They mm. just, you know, the next one, the next one, the next one, I'd hang it on my design wall and stand back from it again, kind of like I did 40 <laughs> years ago. Um, and just like going, oh my gosh, wow. And looking up at closely and standing back and mm-hmm. turning it, rotating it um, all around. Which way do I like it hanging best? And, and from early on, if I find things that I really like, then I do want to show them out there in the world. I would love to show them in a museum, and I would love to do um, a beautiful book on them. I also was very aware of how drastically the publishing world has changed, mm. um, and it wouldn't necessarily be as easy <laughs> as it had been before. And I, I realized I was on to something, and I was showing them to my artist friends maintained a lot of friendships with artists over the years and um, people that didn't necessarily have connections to quilts. And they were looking at them and just like, Oh my gosh, these are incredible. And they were saying, my gosh, that looks like so-and-so's work. Mm. (laughs) That looks like, and, and I've spent the last decades of being in art galleries and being in museums, educating myself more learning, looking at what I like. Um, and, and I was seeing those connections too. It's just when unconventional and unexpected came about, and that on some level, they kind of dropped into my lap too. Should I go into that background briefly? Are are we going way over time? (laughs) I warned you in the beginning. (laughs) I warned you (laughs) that I'm a talker, but there's so much history. There is so much history. And I I will warn everybody in the beginning that it's a long conversation. Um, But I do. Thank you. (laughs) But one of the things that I'm interested in when you're talking about, you know, going and collecting overall is like, when you were buying quilts inexpensively, were you worried that you were like taking advantage of that quilter? I mean, on this most recent or just all over, along? Yeah, oh, all along. Like, was there just this concern about what it was doing overall, I guess, to kind of the cultural fabric? Or was it, did you feel like it was about elevating what was existing? It, it clearly was about elevating what was existing. Now, we hardly ever bought a quilt directly mm. from a, a maker. It was always, you know, at a farm auction or another dealer had bought it and we were buying it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, we always believed in paying a fair price. Mm-hmm. And like any business person or collector, everyone wants to get a good deal and, and get yeah. it for. <clears throat> you know, the lowest price one can, but I feel we were really ethical um, Mm -hmm. before being ethical was in (laughs) No, and we let the dealers that we work with know, it's like, we want to pay you fairly. We're not going to try to, you know, get you to sell us at the lowest price. Mm -hmm. It's definitely hard buying directly from an owner 
Mm-hmm. And and none of the quilts that I got for unconventional and unexpected, that was never a direct exchange. Mm. Um, and on some levels, I preferred having an in-between person. Mm-hmm. They they bought it for whatever price they bought it, and they're offering it to me either at a price or it's on eBay, and I'm competing with others. Um, so no, I, I never have come away feeling like, oh, I really pardon screwed somebody over to get mm-hmm. it. I've always, I think, been very fair, and it clearly was about elevating, and particularly this group of quilts and unconventional i always thought from the beginning it's, it's the kind of quilt that if they were in in a shop people would just walk by them yeah oh, i'm not interested in that so those that's just you know um it's the walk aways from the the ignore and i'm holding them up and presenting them and again presenting them in another vehicle that's beautifully designed, beautifully photographed Mm -hmm. to highlight them to their best, but it's not trying to put lipstick on a pig. Yeah. Um, It's these, in my humble opinion, but it's more than humble. I do have history now with it, and, and I trust the eye. These are something that I want people to stand back and look at. And then they can make a decision like, oh, I'm not interested in this at all. Or, oh, my gosh, I just never thought about that. Or isn't this incredible? Isn't this amazing? Um, I see connections here. And again, I'm, I'm kind of back in the art world showing the work and, and seeing the, the still, the prejudice mm-hmm. among, about made by a woman. It's made with fabric that is, that is rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. There's just so much contemporary work now in the world in using textiles in a variety of ways and forms. Um, But there still is an old guard and some barriers to, to break, to have them completely recognized and, on a lot of levels, it, I appreciate those that go, I don't even care what people think about mm-hmm. it. I'm making my art. I'm making, or, or maybe I'm not making my art. I'm making something to put on the bed for my family to use, or I'm making these because I have to. Mm-hmm. And gee, other people want to buy them or exhibit them. Well, and I love that you've published like quilt backs and sometimes not even, you know, the top of that quilt. And so, yep. <laughs> or you've, you've lit, there was one quilt that you held up where, you know, the front maybe looked kind of ordinary. I think it was like a string, but the back had this amazing like blue lining in it. You know, it didn't even have right. a, a, a traditional back to it. Um, and so it's almost right. like there's this beauty in the unexpected, but maybe what other people might consider mundane. Yes, yes. Um, on some of that was kind of a surprise to me. Um, in, in dealing early on, most every quilt back was either a plain Muslim, mm-hmm. muslin, yes. <laughs> or um, or a solid or two panels of a print 
these were were kind of a big surprise to me about again the unexpected oh my gosh these backs are just so incredible um some of it hand dyed feed sack material and or just the way it aids and unfinished tops that had a foundation of incredible fabric and the thought of oh my if this had been back you'd never see this <laughs> this exciting this visual wonder is hidden inside because that was what she used for her backing, her foundation. So yeah, it's been fun to again present things that hadn't really been looked at and talked about like the back. Well, and one of the things that you said that, you know, you would collect quilts because you you love them and it what drew your attention, maybe not perfect points or anything like that. Yet when you had your collection all together, you realized that one of the common themes was there was a lot of red. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, red was just kind of the the wow factor for me. Yeah. Um, Again, it wasn't something I was consciously thinking about as I went along, but as more and more came in, I, I just started seeing that theme that if that red, sometimes it might just be one piece of red, but <laughs> thinking if, if that wasn't there, would I be as drawn to it? Yeah. And often the thought was no. <laughs> um, and then thinking, what was she thinking as she made them? Mm-hmm. Was she, how conscious was she of where she was placing the fabrics? Some, I can get a feeling like there was a real thoughtfulness about this and others. It was kind of unconscious, but just the hands guiding and placing and this inner knowing that she had. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't being overly conscious about it. And again, it, it, I love showing and getting the feedback that I've gotten from contemporary makers mm-hmm. who they just, they love that sort of just free flow that's happening, what they see in a, in a lot of the quilts, but there, there isn't a lot of, should I put this? Should I put that? Just mm-hmm. put it, just put it, just put it in. Um, Things can always be taken out, but there's just an unconsciousness about many of them. Well, Denise Denise Schmidt talks about that a little bit in her essay in the book, you know, and she has sort of her scrap bag exercise and she talks about it there and she's talked about it in other places where, you know, she sort of forces you to use something that you may not want to and, and kind of constrains the ability to choose and the effort to really ignite your creativity in maybe an unconventional way. Right. Right. Um, and also, you know, Denise and others really do appreciate the historical timeline yeah. that come mm-hmm. before and, you know, I mean, have looked at old quilts and studied and just see that a lot of people in the, in the modern quilt guilds or the modern world, talk about i mean that they they appreciate this history that's being presented they said a lot of new excited quilt makers can come in oh look what i've done look what i've done and it's great but they don't always have the history or realize 
You didn't. You didn't invent this. <laughs> you didn't come up with this. This has been happening. There's this long tradition, um, I, and I see it the same way. I love photography and collect photography, and I like looking at a lot of young photographers, what they're doing, primarily through Instagram. And I'll see a photo that they publish that just really catches my eye, really like, and I see this connection to a certain earlier photographer and often I'll, I'll make a comment about, Oh, it's very so-and-so like, and sometimes they'll come back to me and go, I didn't know that artist. Oh my gosh. I just looked at their work. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. (laughs) Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm in that position now kind of when I got into the quilt business, I was the young guy, the young punk. (laughs) Um, now I'm an elder, but I have this historical perspective of just of my own journey, what I've seen and done and know about that's nice to point out to others and not go just share that information, yeah. that awareness. And when unconventional that got in front of me, the completed project and look at it, it just it felt like such a full circle mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. That it just brought all that I've done together. And again, it, it wasn't planned. It wasn't thought <laughs> out. It just kind of happened. But yet I realized, well, I'm just, I'm following my intuition. I'm yeah. following my creative direction. And like at times I can feel like it's all over the map and undisciplined, but it's not. No. Or it's, it's the way I, <laughs> I create well, it's funny you yeah. should mention that because I was going through the book and I was looking at the one quilt. It's on um, page 25 and it's called Circles. And it's, you know, sort of a square and there's a circle on the edge of it. And um, I was working on a needle turn applique project from Carolyn Friedlander. And it was, you know, circles that I was needle turning. And I was like, oh, what if I just do a quarter instead of all of it? And so I started doing that. Mm-hmm. And then. I think it was like a couple days later, another designer, Nydia, who I really love her work, she was doing it too. And I remember that somebody said, oh, do you think Nydia is copying you? I was like, no, we're all in this universe. We're all playing with, you know, thread and uh, fabric and just seeing what interests us. And so it makes sense that we would perhaps try you know what I mean? The same things. And I'm so I'm looking right, at this quilt right. <laughs> top that you've got in here called Circles, circa mm-hmm. 1960 to 1980. So did I know this quilt existed? No. Did I know that it was that it may be, you know, from an Aunt Martha published pattern from 1958? No. It was just something that, you know, I thought I would try and it it hit me as an interest. Um so right, I think right. just kind of like you saying, connecting that maybe not everything is original. Maybe you were inspired on your own. You weren't necessarily like, I wasn't trying to create that same circles top, obviously, but you know what I mean? It just kind of comes into the general ethos almost. And we're all sort of picking up that, you know? And so it's wonderful to see how it's come through in time too. And like you say, not just in ways that are perfect, but maybe an everyday maker perspective. Right. I I think so many people, in all forms of creative creativity have been thwarted by that teacher or instructor. that, so, Oh, you know, things have to line up or you have to color inside the line. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, ha- it has to be perfect. And not everyone makes things perfectly or wants to. Yeah. Can we have a little bit of <laughs> awareness or excitement about the imperfection? Mm-hmm. Um, that, again, was another theme that I was trying to bring forward about we're all imperfect. Um, <laughs> why are we striving to try to do these perfect painting, perfect piece of ceramic, perfect photograph, perfect quilt? What about just these happy accidents or, and, you know, I mean, artisans have been using the circle, the triangle, (laughs) the line forever. (laughs) And, and everyone's interpreting it in all different kinds of ways. It's been fun for me to watch and primarily not through Instagram quilts to get shown and, Mm -hmm. and to just see, Oh, that looks really similar to, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> something in the book and it's never like oh somebody's copying and and people again a lot of makers have said to me i'm just so inspired by the quilts in here and i know that that feeds ideas some mm-hmm. people have asked and i i would i would love to do my rendition of a quilt on page such and such yeah um please do and i, I asked well, just give me the credit of, you know, mm-hmm. that it was inspired by. Yeah. But then just knowing other work out there, like you said, it's just, what if I try this and this? And then somebody across town or across the country or around the world is trying the same thing <laughs> using their color, their fabric, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I just posted this. I know you did. Actually, on on and and offered it for sale. I know, I know, and and no one's taken me up on it. (laughs) And it's not like it. I'm gonna charge an outrageous. (laughs) It's just I I kind of I want to get things out there into the world. I've actually thought of of offering a lot of the tops to somebody that wants to either finish them or mm-hmm. even cut them apart and mm. do something else with them. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of hesitation around that or quilt police that would just <laughs> cry complete foul about cutting up. And I, I've changed my opinions on that. Um, to, to take something that somebody else made you know, and cut it up can seem a little cruel, but for somebody, another artist, a creative person to take somebody else's unfinished work and use it in a new way, I think it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. I, I really would. I'd love to see more of that. A great mm-hmm. historical quilt, no, I that and make it into pillows. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little, I think, over the edge. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I think it would be quite interesting to have some of this work taken and see what somebody else does with it. How many quilts do you have now? And are you still collecting? It's about 200 quilts and about 100 unfinished tops. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really collecting. I I don't need any more. I started saying that years ago and people would send me pictures and some really great things came in. (laughs) Um, But... I don't need 
anymore. And I'm working with older collectors who I've worked with in the past or who've come to me. A lot of people are at the stage of what do I do mm-hmm. with what I've collected? Yeah. You know, no matter what it is, my children don't want it. So I've, I've been working with helping pass things on in the way they're selling or donating because there are some wonderful pieces out there, wonderful quilts. And, you know, it's in my consciousness too. Of I never was doing it to just have these to be sitting in, um, in my home. I really want them out in the world, other people enjoying them. I, I do believe, Strongly that more museums need to have some more quilts and of this particular genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely believe that these quilts from the last half of the 20th century are, are a part of American art history. Yeah. They have a place mm-hmm. in them. Um, so, and that. A bit of a, I mean, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. The museums aren't quite there yet. And for museums to be showing them, not just have them in their collections, but mm-hmm. I understand the, the challenges that any museum has of showing everything in their collection. But um, because I got fascinated and interested in quilts and have been promoting quilts, all these years. I mean, that's the focus that I have of just continuing to mm-hmm. have them acknowledged, seen for what they really are, and um, have them presented for, for more and more people to see them and be inspired by them. So if you could name three quilters who you felt have advanced the, I, I don't want to call it a craft, but have advanced quilting. No, I mean, craft, there's nothing wrong with that word. And it, I mean, I understand the, the, the dialogues and the discussions and the arguments that have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, ever since I've been getting in it, you know, is it craft? Is it art? Mm-hmm. And, is it both? Um, I, I I lived through the it's photography art, mm-hmm. or you know a lesser art. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I've seen that progression, and I said I, I also appreciate the younger makers now who just say I don't care what you call it. Mm-hmm. It's it's my work. It's my expression, and or embracing the word craft again, that's always been kind of considered lesser. Um, so name three artists <laughs> or quilt makers that, what? <laughs> that you think of advanced quilting. Like I, I, I'll give you time to think about it as one of the people that comes <laughs> to mind for me. And I know you've done a book on her too, but uh, Avon Porcella, you know, who I think just sort of pushed the art quilt world um, and is local and, uh, for you and everything like that. But so when I think of quilters who have 
it's not definitive, but just the people that come to mind um, that you think have, have sort of changed or made us think about quilting differently. Well, I definitely would put Joan Schultz um, on that list. Mm-hmm. She's um, a quilt maker that I met early on, and um, she was submitting slides to me for the Quilt Digest. Um, and she challenged me. Her work challenged my point of view. And she was making dryer lint quilts. Mm. In, in the early 80s, you know, yeah. I mean, and <clears throat> she is an artist and she works with fabric and collaging, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and her work has evolved and, and changed and she's and, and kind of like Yvonne, they're both really good promoters of their work mm-hmm. um, and, and that takes a lot. A lot of people, a lot of creative people have a real challenge about that, promoting themselves, promoting their work. Um, But Yvonne and Joan both have really been able to put their work out there. And Yvonne, particularly in being the real driving force behind creating Studio Art Quilt Associates. Um, It was great to watch her and be involved in that. I was on the first board of that organization. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want people to hate me for not naming them. Um, And of course, well... Earlier, I mentioned Linda McDonald mm-hmm. um, in Northern California. I think she came to it as an artist, um, a painter. She's kind of moving back into painting, but um, her work is really wonderful. Um, oh, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I'm just kind of blanking <laughs> and, and feeling like I'm going to create. Um, I mean, the people that I showed, the makers in um, Quilt Digest, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's exciting to see the young generation of makers now. Um, again, just so many and more men getting involved. Um, well, can we expect another so, book from you? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was very definitive. A definitive no. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think I have it in me. Um, mm. You know, again, unconventional. How many years did that <laughs> brew and um, come about? Um, <clears throat> it is hard work. And um, I, I feel I feel very fortunate to have the body of work that has my name on it now in book form. Um, and yeah, I feel very complete 
about it. And it brings me a lot of satisfaction to have done those projects, um, know the number of people that it has and will continue to have an effect yeah. on and then guide or inspire them in, in, in their journey. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel it's a legacy that's going to live beyond me. Thank you for that, Roderick. You're welcome. That's, uh, it, you've brought the quilting world a true treasure, um, and I think it will live on longer than you or I. So <laughs> I want to thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you for those who support the podcast through your donations. I wouldn't be able to produce these episodes without you. If you have loved what you heard today, I hope you'll consider leaving a review on iTunes or your podcast catcher. You can also find show notes from today's episode on my website, craftyplanner.com. Until next time, stay crafty, my friends.